In slow medicine, the simple act of slowing down decision-making processes, whether they have to do with driving, relocation, healthcare decisions, whatever, the simple act of slowing it down, putting things on the back burner and letting them simmer for a while improves the quality of the decision in and of itself. What's the right thing to do for mom and dad as they get older? Thanks to advances in science and medicine, more of our parents are living longer than ever before. And though we're rewarded with more time with the people we love, we're also faced with new sets of complications. More diseases, more disability, more need for support and careful judgments. Yet while our healthcare system may help people live to an older age, it doesn't perform so well when decline eventually sets in. We want to do the best thing, but we're overwhelmed with the staggering choices we face. Geriatrician Dennis McCullough has spent his life helping families to cope with their parents' aging and eventual final passage, experiences he faced with his own mother. In this inaugural episode of the Kendall Podcast, Dr. McCullough will describe his comforting and much-needed approach, which he terms slow medicine. I'm your host, Steve Lubetkin. Hello and welcome to the Kendall Podcast, brought to you by Kendall, a system of communities, programs, and services committed to enhancing the well-being of older persons and promoting understanding of the aging process. All Kendall affiliates are not-for-profit organizations reflecting the Quaker values of respect for the individual, excellence in service, social responsibility, and fiscal integrity. On the web at kendall.org, that's K-E-N-D-A-L dot O-R-G, or for more information, call 610-335-1200. In this program, we'll hear Dr. McCullough describe his approach to slow medicine as recorded October 13, 2008, at the American Association of Homes and Services for the Aging Conference held in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Shaped by common sense and kindness, grounded in traditional medicine, yet receptive to alternative therapies, Slow Medicine advocates for careful, anticipatory attending to an elder's changing needs rather than waiting for crises that force acute medical interventions, an approach that improves the quality of elders' extended late lives without bankrupting their families financially or emotionally. As Dr. McCullough argues, we need to learn that time and kindness are sometimes more important and humane at these late stages than state-of-the-art medical interventions. Now let's go to the lectern as Beryl Goldman, director of Kendall Outreach, introduces Dr. McCullough. Good morning. I'm Beryl Goldman. I'm the director for Kendall Outreach, and I'm delighted that so many of you woke up so early in the morning. And... I know how exciting I am about this great program that you're all going to hear today. I've known Dennis McCullough since we opened Kendall at Hanover back in the early 90s. And Kendall at Hanover is up in New Hampshire. And I live down here in Pennsylvania. And I remember after meeting Dennis, and I never told him that, that when I, after I met him, I came home and said to my husband, I found my doctor. And he said, all the way up in New Hampshire? And I said, yep. I said, because he truly has the, the practice, the belief, the philosophy that all of us here today, I'm sure, would love to see in all of our physicians that we have. So if any of you have had the opportunity yet 
to, to read the book. You probably already see what his philosophy is about. And if you haven't, I encourage you to listen this morning and then join us later today to meet Dennis at our booth. Or even after the program this morning, Dennis is going to be here for a while and we'll be more than happy to talk with anybody that would like to stay and talk with him. Um, Dennis does have his book down in our booth as well as in the ASA bookstore. And he'll be available for book signing at the booth between 12 and 4 today and 12 and 3.30 tomorrow. Um, so I am delighted to have Dennis here and all of you here to join us today. And I am just thrilled to be the one to be able to introduce us. So please join me in, in welcoming Dennis McCullough. <clears throat> Thank you, Beryl, and good morning, and uh, thank you for coming so early in the morning. I didn't realize I was up against the Phillies until I was down uh, having dinner last night and, uh, and realized what the starting time was going to be. I knew I could be in trouble. What I'd like to do today is to uh, talk a little bit about the concepts uh, in the book that I've written about uh, slow medicine, and also to reserve a fair amount of time uh, for questions and answers, because I think, uh, in my experience, that's been really the richest part uh, of doing uh, these talks. Uh, some years ago, I, I got in the habit of trying to pick up early on uh, important words that related to elder care, and I remember about a decade ago doing a talk about sarcopenia and, and neuroplasticity, which have now come into the language related to shrinking muscles and then how to grow your nervous system again after, a, uh, uh, after an injury. Uh, but I came upon a new term the other day, and I thought I would give, put this out for you to have, and it's so memorable, I, I trust it'll be useful to you. I was doing a CCRC talk in Connecticut, and one of the things that I brought up, particularly with, with older audiences, is the whole issue of, uh, of driving and uh, how you begin to uh, strategize about driving when you're older and deal with your children who are getting more and more nervous about it. Uh, after, the, after the talk, uh, a couple of people came up to me, a woman who was 87 and her friend who was 92, and uh, they wanted to let me know that they were beginning to adjust to this idea of giving up driving. And the 87-year-old said to me, now, Dennis, what I did this time is I, I only took a two-year renewal rather than a four-year renewal on my license. And the 92-year-old said, well, I'll tell you what really burns me up. My neighbor, who's 94, got a six-year renewal on his license, and he didn't even have to take a road test. <laughs> and then she nudged me a little bit, and here's the important word. She said... Do you know what they call us down here in Connecticut? And I said, no, what do you mean? And she said, Q-tips. I said, Q-tips? She said, yeah, when we're down behind the wheel, you only see a little puff of white above. <laughs> and that's one of the danger signs in this community. So remember Q-tips and uh, use it in your community as an identification uh, signal. Well, words are, uh, words are important and stories uh, are important. And I wanted to start out with a... Uh, I have a, um, a couple of things. Uh, one is a, uh, there's a, a new blog 
uh, that you all uh, should be uh, tuned into if you aren't already, and it's by Jane Gross of the New York Times. It's called New Old Age. Uh, and the first day she wrote it, on the 5th of July, she got a 1,000 responses from people. A 1,000 people wrote in with stories mostly of distress uh, about uh, the difficulties of handling family situations with elders. So the, this whole idea of new old age, I think, is something which is beginning to evolve uh, in, our, in our thinking. And, and why is it that uh, there's this new old age? What is this all about? I conceptualize it in, a, uh, in, in, in this way. Uh, what's happening, as we know, in terms of demographics is that there's a huge uh, growth uh, coming in the older population. I mean, we all know that. That's why we're at this meeting in, in part. And the group over 85, of course, is the fastest growing group in the country. And then there are going to be the baby boomers coming up. So we have this huge group of people coming. Uh, and they're living longer, as we know. The actuarial statistics at Kendall's have been rising steadily. Uh, the number of centenarians in the U.S., which was 500 uh, in 1950 is now 50,000 50, and rising very, very rapidly. Uh, I was giving a talk in Seattle the other day and tried to look up the number of centenarians in Seattle, and I couldn't find the exact number, but I found there were enough Japanese-American centenarians in Seattle so that it's become a study center for centenarians and adaptation. So we have this very large group of people uh, coming along. And of course, we know that as people get older and older, uh, they get more and more different. Uh, they, you, you individuate further, you mature further. And the, so older people become more complex with time. And with the changes in medic, um, the medical system going on, older people are accumulating more and more problems that become chronic problems for them so the mix of problems becomes much more difficult for this older group of people as well. So on the one hand, we've got a very, very complex older population. And on the other hand, we have a medical system which in most parts of this country has been fragmenting more and more. So it's more and more difficult for older people to really know who's who and who's what in the medical system and to find people who are really able to be with them through the many complex things that we face. So we have these two somewhat separate things happening. And I think that all of you here who are involved with either residential living for older people or any kind of service for older people are really going to end up being the glue in the system. That, that we have to come to understand two things uh, of great importance. We have to become the experts in aging and aging education so that we can help to guide people through this particular journey. And we have to become experts uh, in individuals as well because we're the people who are going to, along with their families, represent and advocate for them in difficult circumstances. So basically, we have a, a fairly large task, and nobody else really is doing this. Uh, medical schools are not doing very well with their aging education. There are fewer and fewer geriatricians uh, filling the training spots in our programs. Uh, so a new group of people is really going to have to come into 
this area and fill the gap between a complex healthcare system and a very complex population. And a part of the reason that I tackled this book was to try to give some sense of guidance for how this, this can happen. So the stories, uh, what I, I tried to do is to recognize that we are the people uh, who will have to tell the stories of the variable journeys through late life. Some, uh, we tend to celebrate those people who do very, very well, but we oftentimes don't talk about those who stumble along the way or have the kinds of difficulties that lead to a shortened life or a more difficult, a difficult life. So I tried to put into the book stories from late life with the idea of doing some anticipatory guidance uh, that our work as uh, being involved in elder care should be to understand this journey well enough and to really be the anticipatory guides for families and for elders who undertake this journey. The idea is that we need to help to empower elders uh, to be as independent as they can for as long as they can, and when they can't, slowly take over an advocacy role and support role for them. And we need to work, I think, much, much more with their families, and this is where the stories come in as I talk around the country. Families really feel that they're being handed more and more and more responsibility with less and less and less support. And many of you in this room probably have had that experience, uh, as have I, uh, in terms of uh, having an elder in my, my own family. Once we've been able to help to empower families and elders themselves, then I think we have to learn how to build new partnerships in health care. And the good news is that some of this is happening already. There are new models of healthcare that are emerging, starting with the, uh, the PACE model that started nearly 20 years ago. And now the new thing, uh, which is uh, the new kid on the block and people are really jumping ahead of the, the uh, government Medicare program is the medical home model. Uh, I've been out in Seattle uh, doing some consulting with group health out there and they are now starting some early practices where they're reducing the panel size uh, for their primary physicians who are working with elders down to about 1,600 from nearly uh, 2,600 people. All the visits are a half hour in length. There's a lot more communication around uh, uh, through email and, and telephone. They're doing house calls. They're really working with families. They're doing much more advocacy. So this model, I think, is, is going to begin to grow. So we have some early models and partnerships uh, beginning to develop. Now, the roots of slow medicine were, as Beryl pointed out, uh, Kendall at Hanover, where the community uh, really extended to those of us on the healthcare team the privilege of working with them to design the kind of healthcare system they wanted. And we based it in a geriatric team practice, and we really had a, a much more family orientation, even more, I think, than the average geriatric team. Uh, for instance, uh, when a, an important diagnosis was made, whether it be some minor degree of cognitive impairment or a, a problem that was going to unfold, let's say chronic heart failure, uh, Parkinson's disease, we would convene the family early to say, look, there's going to be a different kind of journey 
happening ahead, and we want to start to work with you to help you to understand this journey so when the difficulties emerge uh, in making decisions along the way, you all will be better prepared for this. Even now, uh, many years after we started this program, I will have families get in touch and say, you know, the most important work we did was eight or ten years ago when we sat down together as a group of siblings with our parent and really began to understand that we were going to have to have a different role, that there was going to have to be a balancing between the independence that mother had always had and the growing dependencies that were likely to happen. And we needed to learn to talk with one another about it to allow that to play out. Well, when you uh, get our family oriented this way, the whole transition, for instance, to hospice and palliative care at the end is much easier to make because those kinds of questions have been addressed, uh, at least in part, along the way. The other concept that played into developing slow medicine was the community-oriented primary care, which was, again, the idea that emerged nearly 20 years ago uh, that every community had the, uh, should have the opportunity to have a care system that really reflected its values and particular interests. And I think one of the real uh, potentials in uh, CCRCs and C uh, senior living communities and other community programs is that each and every community basically can de uh, to develop its own culture for how it approaches aging and care. A good example at Kendall, uh, comes from Kendall at Hanover where we had lots of advanced directive discussions uh, over many, many years repeating almost every six months some uh, discussion of questions of advanced directives and not just questions about if we turn off a ventilator when somebody is in the, Karen, uh, the Nancy Cruzone situation of no longer really having any kind of uh, capacity to interact with the world. It evolved to a much more sophisticated set of advanced directives where presently, according to my nurse practitioner partner who's still there, the kinds of advanced directives that are being written are as, as follows. If I can no longer feed myself with food on a fork or spoon or with my fingers, I do not want to be fed. So we're getting into a whole new area, a very complicated gray zone in terms of ethics and our roles as supportive, nurturing uh, caregivers of, of elders for balancing what they might want in terms of advanced directives and the ethics that we as practitioners really have to follow. Another example of how a culture, this culture evolved, in the 17 years that the, uh, the community has been going, because we talked from the very beginning about the value or non-value of feeding tubes, in 17 years there have been two feeding tubes in this community. We've substituted intensive hand feeding and worked with families to try to help them to understand that the feeding process is a way of reading your parent, of knowing their interest. And so you get a better and more personal sense of really what somebody's intentions are for what they might want when they're frail and older. Now, there are places, of course, for feeding tubes in terms of short-term, very short-term, 
probably hospital-related uh, care. But even there, we must recognize that something like a feeding tube is an efficiency measure. It is not a humanitarian measure. It is an efficiency measure. It's easier to hang a bag of nutrients and put a tube in than it is to mobilize staff and have that kind of personal, humane interchange uh, with, with an elder. The, uh, the last part of the, the roots of slow medicine, so every, just to come back to that for, for a minute, every community can establish its own culture. It will establish its own culture if you work very, very carefully with residents and include them in defining what really rep what, what sort of ideas and precepts and practices they would like to follow. Part of my confidence in doing this resides with the Dartmouth Atlas Research Project, which has now been going for about 25, almost 30 years, which looks at Medicare utilization patterns around the country. And what it shows is that areas of high utilization, by and large, don't have any different outcomes than areas where there is lower utilization of health services, particularly hospital services. So they have for some time been showing that there's this, this disparity. You can use a lot of health services or you can use a little, but the outcomes in terms of morbidity, mortality, satisfaction are, are about the same. And in some areas, in fact, it's clear now that in high utilization areas in this country, in high utilization systems, higher utilization is associated in some places with poorer outcomes. And I think those of us who work with elders understand this, that when you get into your over 80, into your 90s and beyond, one has to be extremely judicious in trying to make uh, decisions about what the value of something is going to be. And because we have this fragmented healthcare system, which, with, uh, which doesn't understand as clearly as those of us who work with elders in communities over a long period of time, they don't understand elders as well, believe me, and you probably have this situation in your own communities, uh, that the, we have to be, be involved in helping families or be directly involved ourselves in helping to have more crafted, careful, thoughtful, reflective decisions for older people uh, who are going interacting with the healthcare system. So the Dartmouth Atlas research is clearly showing this. It now can drill down so that we can look, for instance, at individual Kendall practices around the country and show exactly what the patterns of care are. And the patterns of care at a place like Hanover are about one quarter of the hospitalizations for the comparative community group in our community. Half the emergency room visits. Uh, number of days spent in the hospital in the last six months of life on average is 10 days nationally. It's eight days in our community. It's fewer than two days at Kendall at Hanover. And the reason is that there's more prospective, if you will, upstream discussion of healthcare decisions so that when you get down to the last six months of life, it's not getting into that vicious cycle of repeated hospitalizations for problems without one having thought through different strategies for dealing with it.
So the central issues that uh, come, oh, I see what happened now. Um, the, the central issues that, that come up uh, have to do with the way we use time and how we develop relationships. I'm going to just jump ahead here a, a little bit. What I, what I tried to do in writing about this uh, was to, first of all, uh, explain the journey of late life. Give people, a, a families, a sense of how you can break down the journey of late life into some identifiable uh, periods, which I call stations. And those periods have a certain set of issues and problems oftentimes involved with them. And there are concrete things that families and all of us can do to make things better at each station. Stability is the time where uh, many of us uh, drifted into uh, getting involved with our parents late in life because things were going so well that we just tended to think they would go well forever. Uh, and we tended not to want to rock the boat. Uh, things were going well. And so even simple things like advanced directive discussions uh, are resisted a little bit. Older people tell me that their children don't want to have these discussions. And children tell me that, oh, my parents would never want to talk about that. But the reality is, at this stage early on of stability, uh, it's the time to begin to reacquaint yourself with your parents, who they are, what their values are, who they hang out with, how those people understand them and know them. Because we as children may not know our parents as well as the people they spend more time with. That's particularly true in institutions when you think about it that in nursing homes and assisted living settings, for instance, staff become family. They become surrogate family. And how you blend that surrogate family with the other family that they have is, I think, one of the challenges that we face. It's a, it's a complex uh, f feeling. It's an emotional challenge for us. The uh, next stage is compromise. And compromise is basically marked by something coming in from the outside to your life that you're having of your life you're having a tough time coping with. And this is, uh, this is a, a computer coming into this older person's life, but it could be a new diagnosis, it could be uh, the police picking you up for driving a little bit up on the sidewalk someday. Uh, it could be any one of a number of things where all of a sudden the outside world begins to say, hey, somebody else has to get involved with this situation. Uh, so compromise is the next station along the way. After that comes crisis, where families uh, really sometimes, this is the first entry point for many families. You get a call from the hospital saying your mother or father's in the emergency room or admitted, and you really have to engage it, like it or not, because the discharge is going to be in three or four days, and you are going to be the one rolling the wheelchair out of the hospital. So you'd better get there fairly soon, and you'd get, better get prepared. Following that is uh, recovery. Uh, getting acquainted with rehabilitation, uh, and not only rehabilitation within home programs supported by Medicare or skilled nursing facilities, but the rehabilitation that an older person requires after the Medicare paid rehabilitation days. The many months where you really have to decide how you're going to help to continue uh, to support an older person in their recovery, because recovery for somebody who's in their late 80s and 90s doesn't happen in 30 days. It's oftentimes a six to 12 month proposition, and we are shortchanging many of our older 
uh, patients and, and residents because we don't commit to longer periods of recovery. Following that is decline, which is ever, where everybody's trying. The resident is trying, the family is trying, the staff is trying, the healthcare system is trying, but the course continues to be downhill. And this can be, as you know, a period, it's not uncommon to have families say, you know, that lasted a decade. A decade. And sometimes along the way, there, and this is where the next station comes in, prelude to dying. Along that decade-long period of decline, there is going to be the beginning of some kind of transition point where an older person begins to say, and will share this with, with some of us if you listen carefully, that it gets harder to live each day than it does to think about letting go. And from the point of view of family, this is a real a change because families may not be ready to let go as quickly as older people are ready to let go. And in this trajectory downward, there are, and this is a complicated uh, concept to develop with, uh, to discuss with families, there are what I would call opportunities to die. And when somebody's entered into the prelude to dying stage and they're really beginning to process that, and the families have come to realize this, then the discussions really need to turn to such things as, what are the five or six most likely things that are going to happen to you, your dad here in the long-term care facility that are going to lead to a change? Fall and hip fracture, pneumonia, urosepsis, little stroke. We know the things that are coming down the line, and we have to begin to anticipate how for that person we're going to begin the discussions that really uh, put together some advanced directives and a plan that people will sign on to uh, to allow someone to pass quietly and comfortably and in their own circumstance if that is what they choose. And slow medicine is all about making choices and choosing. Making choices, broader set of choices and choosing. So prelude to dying is a very important station. Then there, of course, there's the period of, of active dying, uh, weeks, uh, days to weeks, uh, and uh, a lot has been written about this. I put some things in, into my writing about it to help families. And then the other uh, issue of grieving and legacy, and much more has been written about grieving than about legacy. So I'm going to pause just a minute on the issue of, of legacy. Uh, a, a minister in California named John Fanesteel wrote a book with a funny title called Mrs. Hunter's Happy Death. And uh, in it, he describes historically how people in different cultures have looked at, at uh, dying and death. And one of the points he makes uh, in, in, this, in this book is that if you continue to press only along a medicalized pathway to the very end, you are likely to not have enough energy left to die what would we would term a good death. That is to say, with enough energy left to really be able to relate to people you want to relate to, to be around people you want to be around, to be in a place where you'd like to be when you pass. And so he said a part of what we have to do is to have a, develop a pattern in our communities for what dying means 
and to have that be, emerge as a, as, a, as a tradition within our communities. What, it, what are the many ways you can die and how you can actually begin to uh, set a pathway to try to achieve that? Though not always achievable, it's certainly a, a worthy goal. If we don't begin to do this now, then those of us who are in the baby boomer generation are going to find that we face the same set of problems that elders are facing now in terms of balancing medicalized kinds of in, in interventions with other kinds of supportive, caring interventions that I would term slow medicine. Slow medicine bubbled up uh, when I was writing uh, about the journey of late life. And uh, it, of course, parallels slow food. And the slow food movement began about 20 years ago when the Italians decided they didn't want McDonald's in their main piazzas in Rome because they had food preparation and cooking traditions that they wanted to preserve. Uh, so they came up with this idea of slow food. And slow food is the opposite of fast food, standardized. You get the same hamburger everywhere you go. Uh, it's delivered with high efficiency. It takes uh, such a, a short period of time to do. And they said, that uh, we would really rather have uh, the kinds of traditions that we have in our country. And I think there are three things about slow food and three things about slow medicine that are parallel. With slow food, you use local ingredients and you uh, try to take advantage of seasonal change. So basically you look very closely at the context that you're in in terms of trying to come up with a solution. The same is true in slow medicine. You re really have to craft every solution for an elder in a way that fits their own context, their own values, their own, their own family, their own preferences. The second part of slow food is that when you put it all together, you then put it on the back burner for as long a period of time as you can to really get the, the flavors to sort of infiltrate and mix and, and develop that the, the, the quality that you want in, in the food. In slow medicine, the simple act of slowing down decision-making processes, whether they have to do with driving, relocation, healthcare decisions, whatever, the simple act of slowing it down, putting things on the back burner and letting them simmer for a while improves the quality of the decision in and of itself. And there's research in gerontology to suggest this, that older people make very good decisions if you give them enough time to make the decision. But we've got a healthcare system which is pushing for high efficiencies, like you need a hip replacement, I got a place in the schedule next week. There, our systems are geared toward filling available vacancies because they have to run at a very, very efficient level in order to so-called so break even. Uh, but basically, the technologies are being pushed because they're available. So this, this, this idea of slowing down is extremely important. There is also some research suggesting that if you look at functional MRIs in terms of decision making, older people have more things to bring to a question or a problem or a decision that they're making than other people do because they have a longer life history. And they have lived with friends who have, have gone through losses, friends who have made this kind of medical decision or that, who have moved to a home here or stayed at home, uh, who uh, changed locations so they could adapt their driving or have not. 
So there, there are many more things that get brought to a decision. So the simmering on the back burner is very, very important. And this is where there's going to be a little rub with the healthcare system, trying to slow things down to get more people involved and to have decisions occur over a longer period of time is something that the healthcare system is going to have to start to adapt to because it's better for older people and their families. The third element of slow food and slow medicine is gathering around the kitchen table to have a long meal together. In Italy, six hours. If we could give a few hours for family discussions around complicated problems that have to do with location, medical decisions, whatever, we would be well along the way to making better decisions. So our tasks, in a sense, are to acquire the understanding, a better understanding of this journey of late life, and to become the teachers within each of our programs or settings for our staff and for our families about how this journey happens. So we have to prepare our, our, our families and our staff. And we have to learn to see the individual against this constantly shifting background of aging. For although some physicians still continue to hold that old people don't die of old age, they die of diseases. The reality, if you ask any older person about, are you feeling a little older and is it having an impact on the way you're functioning or the way you're feeling or your health? The answer usually is, of course. But sometimes that's very difficult to introduce into a, a medical system that's oriented uh, toward diseases. We need to do much more work with families. Uh, we have to recognize that decisions that are made for older people have many ripples that flow out from them. Some of them are, uh, are uh, emotional, some of them are financial, and so every decision that's made has a consequence for those people in a family who are going to uh, be, be feeling or be connected to the consequences of that decision. So families have to, even though older people in the beginning may say, I want to be independent, I don't want my family to be involved, we have to begin to understand that a, a united family is in the long run a better bet for an older person than independence until you've totally lost it and then the family's sweeping in to take over. We have to figure out how to reestablish covenantal care. Covenantal care is the old practice of a physician or someone saying, I will stay with you, I will make a covenant with you to be there until the end. I will be the person who, because you invest in, in, my, in, in being with me in my relationship, uh, I, I will in turn commit to being there to the very end with you. And one of the places where we have to start, and this is a relatively simple one, is in long-term care. That we have to figure out if we are, uh, have patients or have a family or uh, run a nursing home, how is it that we send older people with their vulnerabilities into hospitals all by themselves without a representative, a covenantal person to help to sustain uh, a, a role of advocacy to, to support their identity, who they are as a person, 
uh, and to do those things that assure that an older person has dignity even when they're displaced in a hospital. Years ago, we kept parents out of pediatric hospitals thinking that we had to isolate children when they had problems. In any hospital at this point, who ta which takes care of children, most of the teams, the doctors, nurses that round, would not really have a discussion of the problem or situation without a family member being there. Someday we're going to come to realize that the same is true for older people. That we will not have older people in the hospital by themselves without someone else there to be a representative and a supportive person to them when these, when these discussions need to take place. What's happening now is there is no communication with many older people who have a little bit of delirium or just because you're old lying in a hospital bed, in and out of the room. They don't know the names of the doctors, older people don't. Uh, they don't know the, the role of, uh, that people are playing. And so I think we're going to have to really shift with this large group of people coming and those of us in the baby boomer generation coming up with them. We need to find a way to have that kind of advocacy which has been brought into pediatrics uh, into geriatric care. Practicing simultaneous translation is really about uh, making sure that we use language that can bridge the gap. And once again, we are the translators. If we are in communities or programs caring for elders, we have to be sure that the language coming from the healthcare system is really truly understood by older people who will oftentimes not even admit when they don't understand something that goes on. And kindness as an ethical base uh, that in, in any of our programs or in any of our uh, communities where kindness is not a part of interactions and care, we have to get on top of that right away. Because older people become much too vulnerable. The power differential between caregivers and attendants and, and the healthcare system and older people is too great uh, for us to tolerate anything except kindness being a part of every of every presentation. Now the side effects uh, are just quickly more control with families, wider range of choices, humanistic care, uh, caring, and it turns out that in the largest picture it's cheaper and better to do this. It is not only better to do this, it is turning out to be less expensive because these are better crafted decisions, they're more consistent with what older people want, and they're much less high-tech and uh, that's what really slow medicine is about. I'm going to pass those over. So basically, slow medicine is the rebalancing of the healthcare system, the fast medicine system, which has to do with high technology, high efficiency, impersonality, standardization, and to come down on the side of humanistic caring, focusing on the individual, and recognizing that old age is a different time of life. Now, we got started a little late, but I wanted to allow plenty of time for comments and questions. Uh, so I'm going to stop here uh, and hopefully engage in, in some discussion with you all. I know communities are very different, and uh, what's working in some may not work in others, but I think these principles uh, will, are worth exploring in your community or program. How do you get a champion started or how do you get a team going in this direction when we've, we have so many physicians that they are ordering all sorts of things and approaching uh, care aggressively with an 80-year-old as if the person was 40? 
a, a very good question. How, how do you get a team started? The last thing you want to do is tackle the physician medical system part of it. You really need to build foundations. Foundation relationships with families, so families understand and your staff understands. So until you come together as a community to really agree upon the kind of support that you would like to start to offer to people, it becomes extremely difficult to tackle the medical care system. You can do it in, different, in little ways. One of the ways that I have promoted in elder communities is the concept of always, always, always having another person with you at every doctor visit you go to. A second pair of ears. And what it does is it changes the dynamic of a medical interaction and communication. Doctors talk better with two people in the room. And you, listen, you hear more when there's a second person in the room. So that's one simple thing that you can do. I think in, if you're involved with anything to do with long-term care, you can start thinking about how you can take on this advocacy role, which is complicated with staff, how you can begin to do that. But the idea of becoming the educators of the families of older people you work with. And if there are no families, there's a very important concept that came from a, an older patient of mine at, at Kendall, and it's called the circle of concern. Every older person has people who know them in some fashion and will usually be able to shed light on how we understand them and come to help them. They're friends. They're ministers. They're people who have known them along the way. Sometimes they're nieces, nephews, grandchildren. They don't have to be just the adult children. And we have to work with that group also as a, as a supportive group. So I think the primary work that we have to do at this stage is educational. We have to understand the journey. We have to understand not only the, the, the good, exciting 95-year-olds who are still doing all of these things, but people who at 81 are developing early dementia and beginning to fall out of their life in that way. We have to be able to talk about the whole spectrum. I just had a comment about trends that I see in terms of, of older people and physician usage. And it seems like people are using more and more specialists. There are more and more referrals. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have family members who have lots more access via the Internet to, to information and medical information. And so I think what we see happening in our community with lots of older people is the whole process of diagnosing and giving people a, a prognosis becomes much more complicated than, than previously when they just had a relationship with their primary care physician um, who would take on that role. And I wonder if you could speak to that, because I think that's what helps people really get in the place where they want to go ahead with slow medicine when they mm -hmm. know really what, what the outcomes are most likely to be. Yeah. The, I th that is true, and I think that this next generation will bring even more internet kind of uh, uh, knowledge to, to bear on these, uh, on these kinds of questions that are coming up. I think that the more knowledge that gets brought in, the more choices, the better. But I think it's the, it's the simmering on the back burner that needs to happen. You, you need to find some way of convening the group of people who have the varying perspectives on this 
and before they get involved in, in concluding a decision, really allow the elder to really understand and look at the way these play out. Social workers can do it in programs, uh, physicians, nurse, nurses, nurse practitioners, but I think we have to bring, we have to ally with the older person to say, look, there is a lot of information that makes this a complicated decision, but we need to figure out how to process it for you. We need to focus on you and this information, not on just the information where you are. I would say about the physician uh, champions, if you can find a physician or a nurse or a nurse practitioner champion, go ahead and build around that and try to figure out a way to bring that person more closely into your community and program. There are lots of physicians who are saying they're interested in this. And I think they are. People, doctors want to practice differently, particularly primary care doctors with elder practices. Thank you very much. And Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dennis. Um, thank you very much. For, I think it was very stimulating an opportunity for people to see there are physicians out there like you, uh, and we all need to find them in our own areas in which we live, and if not, we're all going to be coming to New Hampshire for you. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, I was asked the question about the, the um, book that you referred to earlier or movie that you referred to earlier, and I do know that in the back of your book, my mother, your mother, there's a whole list of resources that are available uh, that people could to look at for their own family situations or for their own resident environments that they live in. Yes. Um, so I, I really do appreciate all that you've brought to the table for us to think about um, as we try to help people journey up to the mountaintop, as you said in the book. So thanks again. Thank you, Beryl. And thank you all for joining Beryl. us. Mm -hmm. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Kendall Podcast. If you have comments or suggestions about this program, send us an email at kendall at professionalpodcasts.com. Again, for more information on Kendall and its services, visit the web at kendal.org. Or for more information, call 610-335-1200. For Kendall Services, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for listening and take good care.